welcome to another episode of Mississippi Speaks. I'm your host, Evan Brown, and as always, I want to thank you for tuning into another episode of our podcast that's sponsored by One Voice in the Mississippi State Conference NAACP. And with that, I want to send a huge congrats to Mr. Charles Taylor, who was just announced as the new executive director of uh, the state conference. And so congrats, Charles, and we look forward to the amazing things that you're going to accomplish. As their host, I feel like I have to say this. I promise we're not ghosting y'all. Last time that you heard from us, we were embarking on a three-part series uh, around the Mississippi uh, criminal justice system, and uh, we had to put that on pause. Uh, Unfortunately, uh, we've been hard at work, and we just had to put that project on pause uh, to get some of the things that we needed to get done done. Uh, But we do have plans to finish, and I do want to say thank you to everyone who listened uh, to the previous episode, which was a conversation with my brother. Uh, And so uh, thank you all for the kind words that you shared, um, and we really appreciate uh, the feedback that we received on that episode. And we want to piggyback off that, and we want to finish, and we want to dive deeper into Mississippi's criminal justice uh, system. So hold us to it. Uh, We are going to finish it um, in due time. So sit tight with us uh, and we'll let you know when we're uh, dropping those episodes. But today's episode, uh, we're going to focus on corporal punishment. And the context of this episode is uh, we, the Mississippi State Conference NAACP, just hosted uh, their state convention last weekend. And there was a, a panel focused on corporal punishment. And we had some amazing panelists. Um, We had some amazing uh, responses um, to the panel. And so we decided to take that recording and to turn that into an episode. And so uh, for those who were not in attendance and and so if you were in attendance, you may want to hear it again. And so we wanted to to give that to you. Um, But before we uh, take it or I send it to the panelists and you can hear the recording, uh, I want to talk to you a little bit more about corporal punishment in Mississippi. Um, As far as some people, they may not know what corporal punishment is. Uh, You may say, hey, that sounds bad, but I don't know exactly what it is. And most importantly, uh, what are we talking about uh, when we say corporal punishment in this context? And so for me, when I say corporal punishment, I'm thinking about uh, the practice of physically disciplining a student for certain violations. Uh, The method can vary. Uh, But most times uh, when it's carried out uh, in Mississippi and across the country, um, you may think about a paddle. So, for example, if a student uh, commits uh, or has a certain violation and if it's severe enough, that student may be paddled by a teacher or administrator. And if you're like me, the first time that you um, heard that this occurs in schools, you may think, wow, I can't believe that's happening or I can't believe that that's still happening. And unfortunately, it is. And it's happening in 70 districts across Mississippi. Um, And it just doesn't stop in Mississippi. It happens across the country. And um, like most things where we say, I can't believe that still happens. Uh, Last week, we saw in our elections that uh, people were voting to officially end slavery. Uh, There are people who are proponents of corporal punishment, and there are people who believe that corporal punishment is beneficial uh, to our students and to our classrooms and to our communities. And that's simply not true. Uh, Research has shown that corporal punishment 
actually does the opposite. Uh, corporal punishment actually can increase aggression in our students. Uh, corporal punishment can lead to poor academic performance. It can negatively affect physical and emotional behavior. And corporal punishment can weaken student-teacher relationships. And corporal punishment teaches. What does it teach? It teaches that certain violations, conflict resolution, can be resolved through violence. And in our society today where we are bombarded with news um, of violence that's happening around us, where uh, we, we see on the news and we read about violence that occurs in schools, and we don't have to dive deep into that, um, that's, we don't want to enforce that. We don't want our young people uh, learning that conflict or there is a, if you commit a certain violation in the classroom, that violence is the answer. Corporal punishment teaches that. It enforces it. And, and so not only is that not helpful in the context of a classroom, that's not helpful to a young person who learns that and goes into uh, their community. And so through this, this episode uh, and after you hear from our panelists, uh, we hope that you, you sit with this. We hope that you would uh, listen to them and that we hope that you, you learn and that you engage um, with what you hear. And if this is your first time hearing about this, uh, you may say, hey, you're taking me a little too fast. I just poured uh, a lot on you. And so we're going to break this this uh, topic into two parts, uh, two episodes. And so for today's episode, we're just going to hear from our panelists. You're going to hear a little bit about their backgrounds uh, and why they got into this work. But as they talk, you're going to learn more about this practice and, and why we should end it and the impact that it has on our students. Before I send it to the recording, I do want to issue a content warning. There will be discussion uh, about sexual assault uh, as it pertains to corporal punishment. Uh, but I do want to give our uh, you all a heads up that uh, sexual assault will be mentioned um, and um, there will be um, discussion around um, how uh, corporal punishment contributes to that. And so um, with that being said, I, I will send it over uh, to the recording of our panelists and I hope you enjoy. Good morning. Good morning. My name is Ellen Reddy. I'm the executive director for Knowledge Deacon's Family Center. We're located in Holmes County, Mississippi. I guess I come to this work as what folks say I was a northerner when I first came here. I came to Mississippi 25 years ago to join my twin to open Nolly Jenkins Family Center. Nolly Jenkins is our grandmother. The center really honors the role that our grandmother played in our life. I'm from a very small community in Swerving County where I lived in the home with my grandparents, my mother, my Uncle Ben, and his wife lived across the field. Aunt Bird and her husband lived down the road. So I've come from a community who really honored and gave purpose to their children. During that time, many of the people from Scribbing County migrated north. Our north was Baltimore City, Philadelphia, and New York. But when those children migrated north, they would write their parents. We were the children that would read those letters. And so I say that because 
my work is framed around the value that my grandparents placed on us and the value they placed on children. And that's my life purpose. I value our children. I want our children free. We started doing the corporate punishment work in 2002. It was a very hostile environment in Mississippi. I can remember down on the coast, they call us, what a, um, oh my goodness, when you, when you come from a different place and you're trying to use your power, they don't like to see that. So they threw us out of a conference on the coast because we were talking about freeing our children from corporate punishment. We let it go because the environment was too hostile in Mississippi. In 2012, our young people, we work with young people. Kamisha will talk about her work with young people. She's one of the young people who did that work. She was, I think, a second grader at the time. But there was a lot of violence going on in our schools and in our communities. I can remember a partner had taken his, a male partner had taken his wife on a rural road and killed her in front of her eight-year-old son. That was some of the violence going on. Inside of schools, there were beatdowns. The kids would come and they were frightened. So we asked them, what do you think we need to do? We gave them a pad and pencil and sent them into public spaces, laundromats, um, their own homes, inside of churches. Document what you see, what you identify as violence. They did that. They brought it back to us. We disaggregated that data. We looked at it and we decided in all of the places that you identify violence going on. And first, let me tell you what they identify. They were in supermarkets and parents would snatch their children and curse them out. Inside of churches, the minister would stand up at the pulpit and say to members of the church, use a frying pan and knock them upside their head. Those things were going on. That's what our young people were hearing. They came back and we said, of all of the places you see violence, where's the one place you think you can have an impact? They said inside of our schools. They started a petition drive. They did presentations before the school board. Um, they did all kinds of things. That was 2012. In 2018, Holmes County became a consolidated school district. We had an elected board, and they appointed the superintendent. The superintendent was a resident of Holmes County. When he came in, he said, we will eliminate corporal punishment. I remember it happening to me, and I'm still traumatized by it. So they ended corporal punishment in 2018 in the Holmes County School District. We had been working on that. Young people had been working for six years. But we saw the power in our work. So we decided we want our children free across the state of Mississippi and in every one of those 18 states where corporal punishment still exists. I read a book called Corporal Punishment in North America. This was about Brazilian soldiers in 1910. They ran a coup. They took over because they were as sailors, grown men. They were being beat by the, the sergeants on this ship. And now, don't, don't, don't kid yourself. Sailors used to be beat in the United States, Navy as well, but these were Navy men. They decided, enough of this. And so they sought their freedom. That book has really inspired me because it, it speaks to my heart, 19, 1910. And here we are in 2022. We're still fighting the same fight. That's important to me. I honor those soldiers. I honor those sailors, but I also honor the young people inside, our, inside of our community because they did hard work. It took a lot of courage. I'm gonna finish by telling you about a presentation one of our fifth graders did in front of the board. We always prepare our young people to do presentations. We've been doing running over the presentations inside the classrooms, all of, must be for weeks. 
We got to the school board, and I'm a fifth grader. Her name is Cortelia Robinson. We call her Nunu. She came before the board, and she started to talk about what it felt like being injured inside of her classroom. And she said, my teacher grabbed me up in my collar. She beat me in front of the entire class. She said I was no good, and I would never amount to anything. I get teary right now because, you know, we, we practice with our children, but none of that came up until she got before the board. All of that toxicity came out of her. And I said then, I will always fight to free our children. So that's why I'm here this morning. That's my work. I, we want our children free. And so I will pass the mic now to, to Morgan. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. My name is Morgan Craven. I'm the National Director of Policy, Advocacy, and Community Engagement at IDRA. We are a national nonprofit that is based in San Antonio, Texas, but we do work across the South. So we focus on teacher training, um, we focus on policy work um, in schools, and then we do research. And that's research in a number of ways, looking at data, which Whitener will talk about today in the context of corporal punishment but also thinking about what community-driven research looks like, what it looks like to involve young people in research and what it, what it takes to change um, policy and practice in their schools. I have done work around school discipline um, for the past 12 years, first as an attorney. I represented young people who were punished in their schools um, and sent to court and pushed out of their schools. And what I noticed um, is that all my clients were looking the same. Um, they were black or Latino. Many of them had a special education issue that was going unidentified or underserved by their schools. Um, and many of them were just in places where um, they and their families did not have the right access um, and right involvement with the schools. And I really saw that as a systemic problem, which it is. Um, and so I started to think about how I could do this work in a way that felt more systemic and how I could actually tackle the policies um, that are, are putting our children, um, um, are pushing them off the pathways that we want to be on and instead um, pushing them toward um, pathways out of school. And so I've started, I started doing policy work specifically around discipline and policing in schools. And as part of that work, I started looking into corporal punishment and what that looked like in Texas and other states across the South and was honestly horrified, as I'm sure many of you will be today as we talk about the issue more. In Texas, where I live, the law literally says you can spank, paddle, slap, or hit a child for discipline purposes. And to live in a place where it is legally um, permissible to slap a child in schools was horrifying to me, and it should be horrifying to everyone. And so I'm, I'm, I'm just, I feel so fortunate to be able to work with everyone on this panel as part of a, a national coalition of folks that are focused on these issues in the 19 states um, where corporal punishment happens. Think about what happens at the federal level um, and how we can really, really stop this horrible practice that targets particularly black students. Um, I'll just wrap up by saying that that personal element for me is really, really important for this work, and I feel like I'm gonna tear up too. When I think about what, what this looks like for black girls in particular, which we'll talk about, it is very, very upsetting to me, and it should be upsetting to everyone um, that black girls are targeted in schools the way that they are and hit in schools the way they are. And I'll say I have two sons, and so I also think about them and, and the schools that they um, are in and what I want for them. And I think what is true across the board when you talk to any parent 
um, really, uh, you know, most teachers and administrators, anybody who cares about what is happening to children in schools, we want the very, very best for them. And so when we're confronted by something that is happening in our schools that is not consistent with that vision for them, I think it's our responsibility to say it cannot happen to anywhere, to any of our children. And that's what I think about and want for my own, for my own sons. Hey everybody, uh, Chris Scott. I'm a senior program manager for Open Society US for the innovation team. I am also the founder and convener of the Federal School Discipline and Climate Coalition, also known as FedSDC. We are a national coalition that has been working with LN and Mississippi State Coalition in corporal punishment for the last year and a half now. Uh, how we got there, and I'm just gonna be very vulnerable and real with you all, was because Ms. Ellen called us out in a federal meeting we had one day and said, what's the point of having a national federal coalition if they're not gonna work with folks on the ground? And at the time, we were thinking about ways in which we could engage with folks on the ground, but just hadn't got there. But Ms. Ellen lit the spark for us to do that. And over the last year, what we've been doing is really being you know, clear and providing clarity for folks around what corporal punishment is, right? And what it means to make sure that you aren't harming brutalizing, creating trauma, and being violent towards black and brown students, right? And so when we have the conversation around what corporal punishment looks like, we are not just the faces of this. We're representing every black boy, black girl, brown boy, brown girl who have been victimized in schools in the public education. And I know there are some folks that understand it in the ways that maybe corporal punishment is good, and here's where I'll be vulnerable. I grew up in the South. I grew up in Florida in a place called Pine Hills, AKA Crime Hills. Mm -hmm. I would not be sitting here today if I didn't have a football scholarship. I would be in prison. Mm -hmm. And the reason I say that is because I was beat, I was spanked, did dumb stuff, got in trouble. But what it taught me was that that is a natural response for me even as an adult to resort to violence. And I am very clear with people about who I am and what I am. And so when I think back as to how did I become that way, I think towards what did corporal punishment do to me inside my home, inside the school. It made me think that the first reaction if I'm disrespected or if somebody does something to me is to be violent or come from a place of anger and rage. And I think as an adult, what I've tried to do is channel that, that in a way where I can be productive, which is why we started the Federal School Discipline and Climate Coalition which is why I sit in spaces and operate to help educate folks around the harms and what it means to put your hands on a child, particularly someone in a school, right? I have a son that's 10, I have a daughter that's eight. I'm clear with folks, don't put your hands on my kids. And I think each and every one of you that's in the audience today would say the same thing and feel the same way about what it means to protect and provide for your children. And I take that passion and that seriousness with me not just for my kids, but for all kids. Whether it's some kids that I don't even know, because I know what it's like to be in that situation. I know what it's like to have somebody traumatized and be violent towards you, and what that means, and what that means to the trajectory of you. So when you're taught that, and somebody says something to you, and you're having a bad day, what is your natural response and your reaction? And I think that is the question, and those are the things that we're trying to help educate and be better about as a people and as a country particularly in our schools, particularly as we talk about the disproportionality as it relates to black and brown students being hit, being arrested, being criminalized for just being children in ways that they may never understand 
ever as they grow up through life what right or wrong is. That is our job as adults. Our job as adults should not be to harm, should not be to brutalize, should not be to bestow violence on any child. It should be to educate and to teach. And that is why the work in which we do, both in FedSDC co Coalition and the Mississippi State Coalition in Corporal Punishment is so critically important. And I'll just close and wrap by saying this. I think the most important thing that we have learned and that we, that we have taken away from this work is that this work has to be, you have to be courageous and you have to be brave. Because there are a lot of folks that will try to tear us down in ways because we are trying to be the adults in the room that actually want to protect black and brown students, youth, and children. And what Morgan said about black girls, it's not just that they are violently hit by adults in classrooms. Many of them suffer sexual assault as a means of corporal punishment, as a means of some adult in a classroom referring them to another adult and saying, you've been misbehaving. Let me pull down your pants and spank you. And let me spank you harder if you don't make a certain type of sound. That is sexual assault. And I don't think anybody sitting in this audience today would be okay Daughter, son, niece, nephew, grandbaby, godson, goddaughter, if that was happening to them in a school. And so we just have to be very clear about what it means to educate and to teach and not do harm to our children. So I look forward to your question. I look forward to the rest of the conversation that we'll have today. Thank you. So I'm going to ask my name is Brian Wells. Good morning.
over there, even in, in an overseas space, it's not like we have all the resources that we have here. Uh, but I had a mother who refused to accept that narrative, uh, who refused to, you know, and indeed challenge that narrative and decided to find other ways for me to channel these, this, this energy that I had, because I had a lot of energy, and if only I could focus. So they put me in sports. Ended up in athletic scholarships when I went to college. But they also put me in music. And being able to foster that music and creative side actually, in some weird way, restored the humanity as a child. And so I would go on literally by those programs and just the retooling of how we approach kids. And we graduated with a 4.7 GPA and get a scholarship, an academic scholarship as well, right? And I would later go on to work on Capitol Hill. Uh, I always say Chris Scott and I are covering Hill staffers. We are, we are yet still working through <laughs> the things that it means to work with these members of Congress. Um, but that's where I have the opportunity to see where power looks like. Uh, because legislation, the power of legislation is you're taking ideals, whether they are legitimate or not. And these ideals are now being enshrined on paper, and they're being passed, and they regulate where you can go. They regulate where you can't go. They regulate who you can be in relationship with, and who you can't. It regulates sometimes the worship boundaries and, and these other things. And so that's a lot of power sitting there. Working there, I saw that there was a lack of diversity, um, especially amongst the most senior staffers. As you know, black people are only good on Capitol Hill to do poverty alleviation. <laughs> we can only talk about what it means to address poverty and these inequities. But we're much more brilliant than that, right? We, we, we can talk about national security and then flip it on the side and give you something about environmental justice and then go and talk about it. We then how educational equity now matches all of these things and then go back and talk about how tech equity and digital redlining is important to make sure we're bringing everyone up quality space, right? So it matters that we have people like us as chief of staff in these offices, as policy advisors, as the communication directors, who are not just simply being told what the message is, but being able to craft the message and make sure that they are following our soul. So when I started the Daniel Initiative, it was out of that reality. And while we are a lobbying firm and we have clients and everybody we understand can't, um, as we call it, K Street, can't, can't afford K Street prices, we established a number of policy tables to reach outside to the community. So this meant, and, and, and I'm not being funny, this meant really literally making sure that Pookie and Ray Ray and Jesus and Juanita were able to come into this without having to give up their school life or their day job and find a space where they could connect to a legislative track. And then use that to take their righteous demands that were on the street. Because these activists and advocates are the conscious of any society. They hold us accountable to the ideals that we at least say that we are and that we aspire to be. And making sure that we translate that strategically in these in these uh, halls of Congress and these state legislatures. And that's what led me to uh, partnering first with Chris Scott um, as the Dan Richards, the co convener 
of the Federal School District and Climate Coalition. Make no mistake, educational equity is the end goal. However, police free schools <laughs> is the price for admission. And the reason, even though I see, you know, some people are be like, we're talking about corporate punishment, but I want to offer that there is an intersection when we're talking about police and communities. And now that we've seen since the 90s the proliferation of school resource officers in these schools, uh, you already had corporal punishment before law enforcement was there. But I would dare you to say that once we made them advisors on how to deal with our children, it took on an even more enhanced and brutal tactic. Now without any sort of accountability and with impunity. Yep. And so, you know, we see at FedSDC this, this prowess. I know uh, Daryl Baldwin, Chris Pat, myself, who helped launch that SDC, in making sure that we're making it make sense with partners like the Mississippi Coalition. Um, you know, this other, you won't find a more person with her finger on the pulse of what's going on in the state, especially on this issue. And so it is important for us to make sure that we were centering the directly impacted, those with lived experience, and making sure that we were partnering in a way that we were matching our policy expertise from a federal landscape. Because as Morgan said, this is alive and well in 19 states. Mississippi is leading in corporal punishment administration, but there's also the opportunity, as has been example by the years of work by the Mississippi Coalition and not the Jenkins, that Mississippi can also be the leader in how we get out of this. And so, at the Federal School Discipline and Climate Coalition, you know, we are, are uh, very intentional about that partnership. And I'll end with this. When we're talking about corporal punishment, we very much need to understand that we are talking about it in schools only. As, as you know, Miss um, Diane said, the school setting is the only space where the state is still dehumanizing. We removed it out of our prisons, by the way, for inmates, as we call them, as you call them, and those people that we have written off of society, we somehow found a way to get rid of corporal punishment for adults and juvenile um, in those centers. But our kids that are sitting out here, we have, we have left our work undone. We have our work undone. And when we talk about what does corporal punishment teach, to Chris's point, it teaches you, if you're a student, that you don't have value, that you don't have work, because instead of having the nuance to teach me what was wrong, you just beat me out of anger. All I learned is to be violent. But it also teaches the administrator. It teaches the administrator that you don't need to have due process. It teaches the administrator that you don't have to sit and listen and look at this in, in partnership, the value that these students bring. And that may seem benign up until you figure out that anybody and everybody can become president. Anybody and everybody can become a member of Congress. So today's administrator that is sitting here is on their way to absolutely looking at you with the same devaluing characteristics because it's what punishment teaches. And with that, thank you. <laughs> Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I'm James Pratt, Jr. I'm a social professor of criminal justice <clears throat> at Fisk University and coordinator of Homeland Security programs at Fisk University as well. Uh, but I'm born, reared, and raised in Albany, Georgia. That's where my heart is. 
And uh, I remember in middle school, walking down the hallway, and this tall Nigerian man who was our vice principal had this huge pallet in his hand. And he would hear us talking and joking in the hallways. He would say, I want to be your behind. <laughs> and he was serious about it. And he did. He did. But what happened was we had resentment. We gained a sense of resentment against who he was, his administration, and the whole administration of our middle school. And it didn't change our behavior. In actuality, it made it worse. I thought every year I was in school, got in trouble, suspended. Every year I was in school. And so the effectiveness of that punishment was non-existent. So I always had an interest in violence and understanding why people decided to use violence to resolve disputes, to maintain sense of control, to demonstrate what we call love. And so as I developed, I wanted to be an attorney, and, I, and at one point I wanted to lock up all these people that were being violent. That was the solution. That was it. You lock them up, get rid of them. But as I grew up and went to college, I went to Morehouse and, and saw the experience of the black man, and then went on to get my PhD to study what does violence actually mean and what does it actually do, particularly in the South. And that led me to my work, which studies, going back home, the history and the culture of violence throughout the Southern Black Belt, this continuous region in the Deep South that has the highest proportion of black folks in the United States. And I was interested in the question, where does this legacy of violence come from? What, what, what is its purpose? What, what does it mean? And so I decided to study the founding of Albany, the founding of some of these cities, and how these white folks use violence to create town centers and then use this violence to control black bodies for markets. And then again, use violence to control black bodies as we try to get our rights. And then again, use violence to control folks being violent. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then they pour into our schools. And all along, this has been in our schools. And so through that work, I met some good folks, like these folks at, this, at the table, and some other researchers that were interested in the question of corporal punishment. And not just corporal punishment in the contemporary sense in this moment, because we already know that black and brown folks are getting disproportionate rates of punishment for doing the same or fewer, fewer behaviors. Black and brown folks are perceived as older, bigger, and more aggressive already. And so we were not just interested in this disproportionality in the moment. We were, we were looking at what, what, where did this come from? What is this legacy? And so we developed a project where we looked at the legacy of lynching. And so we, we developed a project looking at these 19 states where corporal punishment still is legal. Looking at, in the same areas where we saw high concentrations of historic lynching, we saw the same high rates of corporal punishment in schools. But not only that, we found that in these places with high rates of lynching historically, that the corporal punishment was disproportionately used against black kids and more specifically, black boys. And so that caused us to ask, how are we unpacking and reckoning with the legacy of racial violence that is seeped between and among generations to control our bodies? And so that's where I came into this picture. And then I got to meet some, some folks working with the Mississippi Coalition. And given that Mississippi was leading this charge, so to speak, in corporate punishment, we decided to dig a little deeper. And we found out that it's not only the legacy of lynching, it's also we see low literacy rates. Low rates of being able to do math or, or dyscalculia. We see all of these kind of negative life chances in these areas where we still see the use of corporate punishment. 
And that again asked, uh, made us ask the question, what's really going on and how are we reckoning with this legacy of control of black and brown folks? But not only that, poor black and brown folks. And so part of my work and part of my interest is unpacking all of these things around me. What does violence actually mean to you? If you really love someone, do you want to hit them and spank them? A lot of folks quote, spare the rod, spoil the child. But we have to think, what, what, is, what is a rod? What does a shepherd do with his rod? He guides his sheep. That's right. mm -hmm. He moves them around in a gentle way to the red their path. And so by unifying my religious background and thinking about my love of the church and by thinking about my research, I'm, I came to this table very interested and passionate about the work of ameliorating corporal punishment in the United States, in Mississippi, given that the United States is still a holdout as all these other nations have done the work to get rid of corporal punishment. And I want to end with a quote that a lot of people laugh at uh, when we talk about it, but I want to read this quote. All my life I had to fight. You feel it, right? I had to fight my dad. I had to fight my brothers. I had to fight my cousins and my uncles. A girl, child, ain't safe in a family of men. But I never thought I had to fight in my own house. She let out a breath from reading my book. I love Harpo. God knows I do, but I kill him dead. And see, we know that quote, we laugh at it, we find enjoying it because we, we remember those figures. But that is a quintessential example of how legacies are passed down between generations to our women, to their kids and to their grandkids. And so we're at this table, we're here in this community because we love each other here. And we want to fight to transform our society in a more powerful way so that our kids can know love and share love and we can build communities that we deserve to exist in. Looking forward to having a wonderful conversation today.
social discourse in elementary school. Um, one of my first victories was going before my local school board to be a playground assistant. As a second grader, we look forward to going out to play. One day we came outside and everything was gone. And so, Elliot, my godmother, she had a daycare. My mother was a teen parent. She had a daycare, and from the moment she saw me, she still lived with me. So she decided to leave. But um, I went to her because she always told me that I had a voice, her and her twin. Um, it was always a safe space. I was parented by two mothers. Ella never beat me. It was always uh, a loving environment. She taught me that you do have a voice. You can make a difference. You can make change. So anytime I saw something wrong, I wanted to speak out about it. So I went to her and I was like, well, they took all the playground equipment up and they left these poles and sticking up. Somebody's going to get hurt. And that same week, the boy was playing football and somebody got hurt. And she was like, well, it's time to organize. She gave me a petition. She said, go connect the students, make your presentation. I'm going to see you before the school board. So I made presentations before the school board as a second grader. And there was something at the time, they were like, what are you going here? I was making presentations because that's what I believed in. I believed that I had power. My early uh, LSPs say power is the ability to make something happen or not. And I followed, and I followed, and I made it. And then ever since then, I knew and understood the power that young people have, the potential that young people have to make a difference. So all of my work is around training young people who are in middle and high school to, to understand this social distance, to understand everything in this world as black boys and black girls, how we are centered in the world, but also how we make a difference in the world. I know that I get taught how to organize in schools. I get taught a lot in schools, but my work is to make sure that students in Holmes County, and as many as I can teach, understand that they can take goals for themselves, they can dream as big as they want to, they don't have to have limits on what they can and can't do because of school that needs to be. So we started to organize and make sure that students understood the four steps of community organizing, which is to investigate, educate, negotiate, and demonstrate. To make sure that we had agents of change in this world because People always say young people are the future, young people are the tomorrow, no. But if you don't give us what we need today, how are we going to be there? So inside of the social distance work, I thank God for Knowledge Youth Family Center for being able to impart in me the tools and skills that I have to be able to continue to build a legacy of two sisters that came from another state wanting to see change, wanting to look on young people inside Mississippi, inside of rural Mississippi to make a difference and fight for education in our schools to make sure that we got what we need. That concludes uh, this episode. And as I mentioned, this is a two part um, series. And so um, what you just heard was uh, from our panelists. Uh, next uh, episode, we'll dive a little bit deeper into corporal punishment, but we'll also talk to you about how you can get involved in our fight um, to end corporal punishment uh, here in Mississippi, um, but uh, across the country. So thank you again uh, for tuning in with us 
and we look forward to talking to you next time.